Game shows are among the most storied idioms in television. The first one, Spelling Bee, dates back to 1938, close to the birth of the medium itself. If you look at the history of any broadcast network, you'll probably see a game show in its salad days. By the standards of TV programs, they're inexpensive to produce, are instantly accessible, and can potentially attract a wide spectrum of demographics. Game shows are one of the few programs that young children can easily consume alongside their grandparents. It's easy to see why networks have consistently produced game shows for almost a century at this point. That does not, however, explain why the game show is such an enduring genre across the decades. What is it about these programs that maintain their appeal through so much cultural evolution and upheaval? My explanation is pretty bone simple. The pleasure of the game show lies in vicariously living through the contestants competing for the fabulous prizes. We yell answers at the screen and pat ourselves on the back when we get it right, especially when the person on the show totally blows it. That brings me to Legends of the Hidden Temple, our subject. While Nickelodeon has featured numerous programs where nine-year-olds grind through a mix of trivia rounds and playground-style challenges, this variation felt particularly potent. Many a millennial screamed at their television as a stressed-out child failed to put three pieces of a monkey statue together. So we're going to be examining Legends of the Hidden Temple from its inception to its conclusion and its failed reboot attempts. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is my brother Sylvan. Hello. And Cheryl. Hello. Uh, so before we go into the overview of this program, you have both watched a couple of episodes of Legends of the Hidden Temple after not watching it for decades. Lots of memories were jogged loose. What are your impressions? This show caused me a lot of stress and anxiety as a child at some points. Season 3 seems to have been the worst for stressed out challenges. I couldn't look directly at it. Oh my god, I totally agree. I have acid reflux right now. I was saying, one of the most stressful things on YouTube is this montage of just kids struggling to put that damn monkey together. To the Sonic the Hedgehog drowning music? That's so mean. What? What? That, that was an edit. I, I don't think that was the original cut, but yes, that was just created to drive millennials insane. No, no, we don't need that. <laughs> I have enough stress from work, thank you. And Charlotte has said that um, her team is the Silver Snakes. Yep, when I was a kid I was obsessed with them, and as an adult I'm like, yeah, it's got the best logo. I liked the blue barracudas and the purple parrots. Yeah, I I'm a green monkey myself. It's kind of like a 90s kid elementary school playground astrological thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm a green monkey. We're competitive. Is it because, like, I'm a Scorpio? So I'm like, yeah, snakes. Yeah, that's a total silver snake thing to say. I mean, I, I just liked how bright blue the shirts were. I remember uh, being over my cousin's house once, though, and asking what a barracuda was, because I didn't know. Ooh, barracuda. <laughs> I did not get a straight answer. It's an evil, bitey, fishy thing. Yeah, well, I know what a barracuda <laughs> is now, but I didn't when I was, like, eight. Listeners, a barracuda is a carnivorous fish. Anyways, the Nickelodeon cable channel was a struggling loss leader until the 1986 game show Double Dare became a runaway success. For years afterwards, Nick would churn out a legion of attempts to recreate the show's magic. This became even more pronounced when the channel opened Nickelodeon Studios at Universal Studios in Florida. Having a TV studio operating at a theme park gave Nickelodeon a central location to keep sets, talent, and personnel while also getting access to a steady influx of tourists to use his audience 
members and show contestants. Starting in 1990, Nickelodeon's original programming turned into an efficient content factory. Legends of the Hidden Temple was created by David G. Stanley, Scott A. Stone, and Stephen Brown, and produced by Stone Stanley Productions. I don't know where they got the name from. <laughs> takes place in a fictitious temple. The temple's fake. Really? Yeah, believe it or not, the, um... Is that why it changes so drastically from season to season? And it also appropriates things from various cultures from different continents. I did notice that. (laughs) We got into a fight about a couple of the rooms. Yeah, Cheryl thinks that, uh, there were mummies there. In caskets! They they were not mummies. They were very clearly skeletons with ripped-up bits of shroud on them. Or they were very naked mummies. I mean, I suppose if they had been, like, you know, completely, like, taken apart by grave robbers, maybe. But mummies go through preservative processes. They don't break down to the point of just being skeletons. But they had little, like, clothy bits. We don't need to recreate this argument. (laughs) Anyways, it takes place in a fictitious temple filled with lost treasures protected by Mayan temple guards. Assholes. Yeah, another horrifying element of the show is just that at any moment, a gaudily clad show writer forced into a costume would just jump out and be like, ooga booga. Yeah, but the costumes... And sometimes they're in trees. The costumes themselves, like, you don't see the eyes. That's the worst part. The whole face is, like, covered. And sometimes they're in trees. Or they're just arms reaching out for you. Right? The stupid warriors for him? That was bullshit. That was some bullshit. The number of times we yelled bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) When we were kids, we were mocking the kids. But now we're just like, those poor bastards never stood a chance. This show is bullshit. We'll be getting into why. (laughs) Each episode would center upon an historical artifact being held... Historical air quotes. ...being held in one of the temple's many rooms. Like a cannonball. (laughs) Six teams of two children, one boy and one girl, would compete for a chance to race through the temple and retrieve the object, winning a grand prize should they succeed. Teams were eliminated through rounds where they perform physical stunts or answer questions based on history, mythology, or geography. Air quotes. The show was hosted by Kirk Fogg, announced by D. Baker, and overseen by a giant stone head named Olmec, who is also voiced by Baker. Uh, it was broken down into several rounds, uh, the first being the moat. Six teams would attempt to cross a narrow pool with a rotating set of methods. Manners included rope nets, inner tubes, and so on and so forth. The inner tubes definitely looked like the most fun. The first four teams to cross the pool advanced to the Steps of Knowledge. At this point, Olmec would tell the teams the legend of the episode's artifact and then ask a series of questions based on what he's just said. These were multiple choice questions with three answers. Teams would answer by stomping on a button on their step and advancing down to the next step if they got it right. That always seemed so fun to me as a kid, by the way. The first two teams to get to the bottom of the steps of knowledge would advance to the temple games. This was a series of three physical challenges where the teams would compete for the pendants of life that could be used in the final round. Challenges were of the middle school gym class variety, often consisting of rope climbing and zip lines. But like a fun gym class, not like a real one. Well, there was another one where they were just like put a code key into some place and then if they got it wrong, they would get squirted in the face by water. They were 
giggling. <laughs> that, that didn't really require much physicality. Uh, in the event of a tie, Olmec would ask a tie-breaking question. In Season 1, a team that answered incorrectly or timed out would be eliminated. In Seasons 2 and 3, the rules were changed to mandate that a team had to get the tiebreaker question right before advancing. And the team that advanced to the Temple Room would be treated to the episode's climax, involving the team scrambling through obstacles in various Temple Rooms to retrieve the artifact within three minutes. And this is where the trauma happened. Uh-huh. One team member was designated to go first with all the pendants they earned in round three. If the team had only half a pendant, a second half would be in one of the rooms. Two spots in the temple would have Mayan guards. If the contestant was caught, they could exchange a pendant to continue. If they lacked a pendant, they'd be escorted out and the second contestant would try their luck. The team would earn a prize merely for getting to the temple. If they managed to get to the artifact, remaining temple guards would vanish, all locked doors would open, and another prize would be awarded. If they got out before the time ran out, the grand prize was theirs. And this almost never happened. More on that later. Yeah. For the casting of this, Kirk Fogg was an off-Broadway actor who did a lot of commercials before Legends of the Hidden Temple. He got the gig because Nickelodeon executives saw his headshot in a trade magazine and thought that he had the right look. You see, back in the early 90s, if you were a struggling actor, you would give trade magazines like, I don't know, $50 a year or something, and they'd have your headshot in there, and then, hey, maybe somebody would think that you had the right look and give you a call. So that's how Fogg got the gig. Cheryl's roommate compared him to a youth pastor. I mean, she wasn't wrong. I think Fog is an example of how game show host is one of those invisible talents where it's hard to gauge how to be good at it until you see a bunch of people who are terrible at it. I mean, terrible's a bit harsh, but he's definitely not good at it. He well, scammers a lot. I think a recent example would be like shortly after Alex Trebek died and they had various people like guests host Jeopardy. And some of the people had a lot of natural charisma and some of the people were not good at all. It's like, I always liked Alex Trebek, but now I appreciate what he contributed more because, yeah, just holding it down on a simple trivia game show, there's more to it uh, than one would initially suspect. Yep, although I do maintain that Kirk Fogg gives off exactly the same nervous, oh my god, why are they filming the energy as the children? <laughs> but every season... <laughs> I do think that he got a little better at it as it went along. The first few episodes, I tried not to hold it against them. I think the reason why for this podcast, I had us like watch one episode from season one, one from season two, and then another from season three, is just to see, like, did Fogg ease into the role at all? And I think he did. He still stammers in season three, but a lot less. Uh, just comparing him to other Nick TV show or game show hosts of the uh, time period, you know, he's, he's no Mark Summers or Mike. O'Malley. No, Mike O'Malley was like super enthusiastic about what he was doing. And there's a lot less dead air with him. Yeah, and you can see little adjustments. Between season one and two, they started giving Olmec more work. Like, at first, the temple games were described by Fogg, and it was like, no, in season two, Olmec's doing that. Olmec was also telling them what prizes they were going to win before they got into the temple. You know, they didn't win the prizes. Fogg said that he based his performance on play-by-play commentators and sports broadcasting, which is, you know, an obvious route to go through. Once again, in season one, he runs out of things to say pretty fast. He's like, the green monkeys are determined, but the purple parrots are also determined. Everyone's pretty determined. They're, uh, gonna, maybe, they gotta finish this fast! It was, like, a lot of things that he said were very similar to that. 
Yes, more in his bag of tricks when we get to season three, I think. And, like, one thing I do like about him is, I'm not saying it as a diss that he gives off the same energy as the kids. He does seem to empathize with them. Yeah, more on that in a bit. Another thing that is very important, especially to these Nickelodeon game shows, is that game show hosts have to keep things moving, and they have to get the contestants off the stage real fast when they blow it. I think a goddamn all-star doing this is Drew Carey on The Price is Right. Whenever somebody blows it at the wheel, he just, you know, shakes their hand, says something nice, and then just shoves them off to the side without seeming like that's what he's doing. Fog has to do that quite a bit. There's one episode we saw where, like, one of the uh, green monkeys beefed in on the temple games. He's visibly crying. Yeah, he actively went. I felt so bad for that kid. He looked so disappointed in himself. Yeah, they didn't win a single match, and there was another one where, like, they're chained together, and they have to work their way through, like, this two-sided human maze. That's some BS. And they were close on that one. It looked like they were going to win, and the purple parrots pulled ahead at the last second. Just because she yanked her teammate through the hole. Because her teammate was going the wrong way. Dang it, Derek! (laughs) Move! We got a little invested in that one. D. Baker was hired out of an improv sketch troupe that he was in called the Anatomical Players. They performed at Epcot's Wonders of Life Pavilion at Disney World. Legends of the Hidden Temple was his very first television or film gig. Baker later became a popular voice actor and now has hundreds of credits. His IMDb page is miles long. For example, he was Taz in Space Jam and also Daffy Duck. Interesting. He was a bunch of minor characters and animals in the Wild Thornberries, Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls. SpongeBob SquarePants, and Johnny Bravo. He's kind of a go-to for animal noises. So like a Frank Walker type guy? Yeah, a little bit. His most popular role at this point is probably Perry Platypus and Phineas and Ferb. Oh, nice. Good for him. Yeah. If you look at the history of Nickelodeon in any um, detail, anybody who made a lot of money for Nickelodeon in the mid-90s was poached by Disney in the early 2000s. That explains a lot. He is also Captain Rex in the Clone Wars cartoon. Baker said that he based his Olmec voice on uh, singing lessons he was taking from the time from an opera baritone. He had just learned how to use his diaphragm for the first time. The kids were largely pulled from the Orlando area, which means that it's kind of bullshit. There's that word again. (laughs) When they won the grand prize of a trip to Bush Gardens, like the fourth (laughs) best theme park in Orlando. (laughs) Contestants would have to pass a written test and a rope climbing challenge to get on the show. One thing that I found pretty interesting is that the kids did not know their teammate beforehand. That comes across sometimes, especially in the first two seasons where, like, he's interviewing them and they get to give the answers and stuff. You can tell they have no clue about the person standing next to them. He's jamming John. That's what all his friends call him, because I'm friends with him. (laughs) Yeah, that's another thing that shifted from season to season. In the first one, they don't always do, like, little interviews getting to know you, like, like in the second round of Jeopardy. And in season two, they interview the kids, but the kids are often stammery because they're awkward and on TV and just have to run across a moat earlier in that day. Uh, and in the third one, he just tells you a couple of factoids about the kids while they just stand there and grin at the camera. <laughs> or look worried and nervous. Yeah. Ages range from 9 to 14. Thankfully, producers wouldn't make the 9-year-olds compete against the 14 year olds yeah that that sounds uneven yeah one thing that i found out is that the children got a transcript of olmec's legend in advance of the steps of knowledge round 
This comes across quite readily, especially because unlike Jeopardy, you're allowed to interrupt the host while he's asking the question. It is quite rude. Old Mike seems annoyed whenever a kid interrupts him and they just like yell something out. He's like, that wasn't even one of the choices. (laughs) (laughs) Incorrect. I enjoyed those ones. Don't step on Olmec's lines. (laughs) Olmec's just a delight the whole way through. Kirk Fogg just always like, are you ready, Olmec? And he's like, let's rock and roll. I liked in the first season when they're getting ready for, uh, like, to run into the temple and he wishes them good luck in the most ominous way possible. See, my favorite Olmecism is in the very beginning where he's like, your guide is Kirk Fogg and here he is now. (laughs) (laughs) pleasantly surprised that Kirk Fogg is actually there. I think he's going to be late or something. <laughs> the second and third seasons, he gets to swing in on a rope. Another thing I noticed between the seasons is that not only did they light it differently, it's it's a little dimmer. There's more earth tones, and it's more dramatic. And uh, they also use more, like, low-angle shots, especially with Olmec, to make him look more imposing. And, like, little tracking shots of Kirk Fogg while he's describing something that's happening in order to make it a little more exciting than just, like, a standard meeting. Medium shot. He also got more pouches. Yeah, he got more pouches. And pants. Yeah, Rob Liefeld sponsored Legends of the Hidden Temple for a bit. Also, they seem to have upped their fog budget yes. in between every season. <laughs> Dramatically. Like, the Pit of Despair was just, I think they had, like, gym mats at the bottom of it, but in season two, they had, like, Chuck E. Cheese ball pit, and then the third season, they, they went back. Like, you swing? Yeah. <laughs> in the third season, they had a swing there, but they also had bigger gym mats, but they were spray-painted to look like rocks. That's what I was looking at? <laughs> Like many game shows, four to five episodes of Legends of the Hidden Temple would be shot per day. The condensed filming schedule is a big part of why game shows have lower overhead when compared to uh, other television programs. The rounds were all shot in blocks. They do like four or five moat challenges, then four or five steps of knowledge, and so on. Fogg commented in a retrospective that that was for the better, for uh, especially for the kids. It would have really sucked for a kid to wait around all day only to utterly beef it at the moat challenge. And so at least they got it out of the way. Especially since Legends of the Hidden Temple didn't have much of a prize budget. So if you blew it at the moat, they gave you like Nestle's Quick. <laughs> God, those prizes are so sad. They got a little better as the seasons went, though. Yeah, yeah I guess they had... reason you get a sneaker. <laughs> yeah, they gave you hush puppies if you blew it at the moat, or, like, a $50 savings bond that was sponsored by that lollipop whistle. Which, I, I swear, never worked. Seasons were shot maybe nine months apart from each other. Nick was a very well-oiled machine at this point, as I already said. Fogg would see the crew breaking down the gut set while putting up the hidden temple set. It was real fast. To my surprise, nobody got hurt on any of the obstacles or in the temple. Not seriously enough to call in medics, at least. One girl stress vomited in the pit of despair during the temple run. Odd that only one person puked. Maybe that's why they they got rid of the packing peanuts. (laughs) Yeah, they cut, cleaned up the balls in the ball pit, and then set her back in there while putting the clock to where it was. That's Uh, nice. She was crying hysterically, so they needed some time to get her back to normal. People can get pretty bad anxiety on game shows. Ben Stein would remark that contestants on his game show would be covered in flop sweat when he shook their hand, and they were grown-ups competing for $5,000. Which, granted, $5,000 went a lot further in, like, 2003, but still, that wasn't life-changing money. 
Fogg ran the Temple course every year just before rehearsals. He wanted to understand what the kids were going through, so he'd have them put three minutes on the clock and charge through it on his own. He did not mention whether he was able to successfully get the artifact or not. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's telling. (laughs) The interviewer asked him if there were Temple guards, and he said, nobody's ever asked me that before. No. eliminates like 90% of the anxiety right there. <laughs> I'm surprised none of the kids ever struck a temple guard. That, I know, I probably would by accident if a tree fucking grabs yeah, me. Yeah, just panic. Like, no means no! And when I was a kid I was thinking if I ever got on Legends of the Hidden Temple and a temple guard tried to grab me, I'd have kicked him in the nads and kept running. And I'm guessing they screened kids for that. <laughs> Of course, I was a little chunky kid, so I don't think I would have been able to handle the rope climbing challenge anyways. I was always most excited about the moats. I don't know why I would have sucked at those. <laughs> that's really cute, though. You're like, that's my time to shine. <laughs> and it absolutely would not have been. Temple guards were played by whoever was available, including writers of the trivia questions. Legends had a tight budget, so the gauntlet in the temple run was made frustratingly difficult on purpose to ensure a minimal amount of champions. There were about 120 episodes of Legends of the Hidden Temple, and I forgot how many times the kids actually won, but I believe it's single digits. Oh my god. (laughs) Consolation prizes included toy trucks, candy, and a fucking yo-yo. According to a ridiculously exhaustive breakdown compiled by Nerdist, the orange iguanas made it to the temple the most often, while the purple parrots fared the worst. The green monkeys had the best average of beating the temple, while, once again, the parrots do the worst. (sighs) After three seasons and 120 episodes, Nick ended Legends of the Hidden Temple while a prospective fourth season was in pre-production. Nick had a few pilots for new game shows in the pipeline, so they probably felt that Legends had run its course. In 2016, Nickelodeon produced a scripted TV movie based on the game show. It followed three siblings who ditch a a jungle tour and wind up in an Indiana Jones-style adventure. Iconography from the game show was sprinkled throughout, and Fogg played a tour guide while Baker reprised his role as Olmec. In 2019, a revival of the game show was announced for Quibi. Oh, that was a thing! Yeah! If you're listening to this in the distant future, Quibi was a um, streaming platform that was launched by Jeffrey Katzenberg of DreamWorks and Disney fame. We, we've mentioned him a couple of times the Disney Renaissance films. It was something you're supposed to like watch on the bus on your way to work. It did not work. Quibi failed in 2020 because what are you going to do on a bus in 2020? The show was moved to the CW and it premiered in 2021. Baker returned as Olmec once again again, while hosting duties fell to Cristela Alonso. The new show has the same format as the original, except now the contestants are in their 20s and 30s. Oh, that's so sad. I guess for assholes like me who thought that I would have crushed it on Legends of the Hidden Temple when I was a kid, there's a chance to be like, well, put up or shut up, here you go. That or kids that didn't even get there now have their chance. I'm guessing that if the show had been successful, they might have brought back some people who were on the original back in the day because they did that for, like, revivals of Double Dare. It was interesting seeing, like, 45-year-olds go on Family Double Dare with their kids. Personally, I can understand where they're coming from, as Cheryl put it herself when I mentioned it. It's an interesting update, but it kind of kills the tension, I think. Because watching a 35-year-old struggle to put that monkey together is... Sad. 
Yeah. And also, like, super relatable. Also, while Legends was an upgrade from Double Dare in terms of set dressing, it pales in comparison to something like, say, Wipeout or American Ninja Warrior, which essentially has the same format but much more elaborate. This Legends of the Hidden Temple revival was one of the lowest shows on the uh, on the CW during its season, and its cancellation was announced as we were recording this today. Yep. They got 13 episodes. I watched one just for the sake of having something to say about it, and uh, yeah, it's not that good. Maybe next time. That uh, one, one, thing, one question I have. Were, was the history a little more, like, based in history for the revival? Eh, not really. I guess we should have brought this up beforehand, but uh, the history lessons in Legends of the Hidden Temple are quite apocryphal. Uh, one of the ones we saw, uh, I looked up specifically because the t kids actually won one, and I th thought we should do an episode where, you know, they actually win the vacation, was they were looking for a Galileo's cannonball. You know, the whole thing where he uh, proved that gravity makes everything fall at the same rate by dropping two cannonballs off, off a high tower, which almost certainly didn't happen, but to just... Add a piece de resistance to it. According to Olmec, <laughs> the cannonballs fell on some uh, cheese and pepperoni sandwiches, and thus Galileo invented pizza. Like, even when I was nine, I was like, no. <laughs> so you looked it up. <laughs> so well, we didn't have the Googles in 1993, but I had an inkling. <laughs> Anyways, themes. Uh, first thing I wrote down was three seasons and you're out. Children's programming often ran out of the premise that three seasons was the maximum length for a show's lifespan. The thinking was that the program's core audience would age out of the fandom within three years, and that it would be better to start fresh with a new show. I get it. A six-year-old is a pretty different person from when they're nine, and taste can change very quickly. You can start out, say, liking, uh, oh, Dinosaur Train. And then, and then three years later, it's just like Dinosaur Trains for Babies. I never liked Dinosaur Trains. Stop embarrassing me by singing the theme song, Uncle Ryan. This hurts. <laughs> dinosaur Train. Dinosaur Train. <laughs> Rugrats defied this wisdom when, after production was halted after three seasons and 65 episodes... Nick thought that 65 episodes was enough for syndication, but Nick had Klasky Chupo produce a Passover and uh, Hanukkah specials. Those shattered ratings expectations and demonstrated that the franchise had plenty more gas in the tank. So that's why it kept starting and stopping? Yep. This resulted in six more seasons, three movies, and a spin-off called All Grown Up. That was terrible. While some kids' shows still get abbreviated runs, it's now more common for shows to keep running for as long as they retain viewership and profitability, just like ordinary TV. The Fairly Odd Parents, Adventure Time, Ben 10, and many other shows went on much longer than three seasons. SpongeBob has been going on since 1999 without cessation. The next thing I wanted to mention was facing up to your limitations. <laughs> because Legends of the Hidden Temple is an exercise in humility, if nothing else. As I mentioned already, as a kid, I thought the contestants on this show were chumps and that I would totally do better. <laughs> I never had those delusions. As an asthmatic kid who gained a lot of weight through medication and ate a lot of microwave pizza, I was definitely kidding myself. <laughs> I would have blown it at the rope climbing tryouts, if not the moat. <laughs> I thought the challenges looked fun, but I didn't think I'd do well at them. The Silver Monkey, in particular, infuriates many fans of the show, since it's only three pieces that have obvious monkey shapes. Of course, there's a world of difference between watching at home and being there in the moment, I imagine. 
Also, that monkey was actually pretty cumbersome, and you apparently had to force it down pretty hard to get it into place, according to not only kids who were on the show, but people who constructed the monkey. That monkey was fucking bullshit on purpose, because Legend of the Hidden Temple is also an exercise in bullshit. The worst feeling was when kids got the head on backwards. You were almost done! Or just when they run into the shrine when you know there's no way they have enough time to do it. Two of the three episodes we saw, that like they ran into the shrine with like 10 seconds left on the clock. Like, you know it's not happening. No. But maybe their goal was just to like, just to do the monkey. I'm gonna get the monkey done. Maybe on the third season, because I think one of the other reasons that they made the rooms more elaborate, besides the fact that they had more of a budget, was just because for seasons two, and especially season three, the kids on those shows were familiar with Legends of the Hidden Temple. They are just like, all right, I know what I'm in for. I want to figure out that monkey. But nope, I'm not going to be able to get past those not-quite-mummies. Or the, the, what is it, the room of the headless kings. Or the jungle room with those trees that grab you. Fuck those trees. I mean, something Cheryl said is like whenever she would rewatch the Wizard of Oz she was expecting those trees to be creepy because she was confusing them with the Legend of the Hidden Temple trees. Yeah, I was like, wow, I was terrified of these as a kid, but they're fine now. I, I just would have thought that there would have been some lingering fear. Then we saw trees with arms on my TV just a minute ago, and I was like, nope, there's the fear, there's the fear, I found it. <laughs> Stranger danger from a fucking tree? No, thank you. Yeah, I actually like the Wizard of Oz trees. Right? They're like snappy and like you're like you should have been b arthur like that's great (laughs) all right well that's everything in my notes is there anything that either of you would like to say about legends of the hidden temple before we close things out i think it's worth mentioning that so while me and cheryl were watching we wound up on our phones looking on like etsy (laughs) and amazon and seeing what people were selling based on uh legends of the hidden temple and people have made i saw multiple silver monkey statue replicas like people just want to have them in their house and personally that that statue still inspires a deep rage in me so i can't imagine displaying it as a knickknack maybe buying it as a gift for somebody that i didn't like right i was gonna say a gift for somebody that did blow it on the silver monkey (laughs) you're just like hey i know it's been 20 years but fuck you You're also hypercritical of uh, a lot of the bootleg Hidden Temple t-shirts. And it was like, that blue Barracuda one is a navel blue, and on the show it's a teal. Yeah, it's like this very particular 90s bright blue, like kind of like a Leonardo Ninja Turtle bandana blue, which is probably why I initially liked it so much. That does make sense for you. Yeah. We're learning things about ourselves here. Aww. All right, if that's it, uh, thank you for listening to this, and uh, join us next time.